I'm going to take a guess that um, for most of you, this last week was not a week of exuberant spiritual high after spiritual high after spiritual high. That this last week you struggled to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That you probably didn't love your enemies. Um, Maybe instead you felt spiteful toward them. That you got angry with somebody. That you had good intentions after last Sunday's worship to start the week afresh and new and maybe by Monday night you were feeling pretty ragged again and distant from God. This morning I was uh, listening to the Psalms in an audio way and I heard Psalm 136. And Psalm 136 is this this catalog of all these wonderful things that God has done for His people. And the refrain of Psalm 136 is simple and yet profound and just incredibly uh, encouraging for people like us who had weeks like that. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. As people who follow this person, Jesus, that we believe was uh, God incarnate, God who walked upon the earth, uh, we have a tendency sometimes to overestimate our own importance and role in what God is doing in the world. If last week, as I described it, was anything like your week, it's easy to come on a Sunday and, and put a happy face on. It's easy to come on a Sunday and, and, uh, and enjoy worship, and, and it's, we're commanded to do so to come and worship the Lord. Um, But it's also good to be really honest uh, before God. If your week was anything like what I just described, there's great, great, great news, which is that you're on the margins and that God is in the center and that the work that God is doing in the world is so much more about Him than it is about you. And He loves you. He loves you with a steadfast love that will go on and on and on as you continue to have um, failure after failure after failure in your life. His steadfast love endures forever. The other thing that I want to say, just really kind of keeping it real for just a second, is... It's not anybody who loves you. It's not just kind of your best friend or your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad who loves you. But it's the God who made the heavens and the earth. It's the God who made everything that you see. It's the God who knows every thought in your mind before it enters your mind. And it's the God who knows what will happen tomorrow. And this is the God who is a God of of resurrection, life, and power. The God who loves you, the God who cares for you, even though you're messed up, and even though you're half-hearted, and even though you continue to fail week after week after week, is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. 
in real life, in, in a world just like ours, except it didn't have the, 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 you know, the technology and the motor cars and everything else, but it, it was a world and it was real people and it was real flesh and it was real dirt and it was real death and it was real life. And so part of what defines you as you sit here as a follower of Jesus, if that's indeed how you would identify yourself, is that um, you are defined by a miracle, by the fact that this God that loves you with a love that will never end is also the same God who raised his son from the dead and defied every piece of data that we have to go on as people in the world. He's a God of great and abundant power. So, I want you to hear that more than anything else. That's why I started there. I want you to know that whatever your week was like, and if you just barely made it to this Sunday, that you're loved deeply by a God who's incredibly powerful. Come back to that in a moment, but um, this life, this world, our endeavors are defined by this one reality, by this God who exists and who loves you. His steadfast love endures forever. In the first century, this God's people were were struggling. They were um, also trying to make it through every day many of them um, significantly oppressed and repressed, if we, as we've talked about week after week in this series on Jesus as the center in Luke's Gospel. They were under Roman rule. They didn't have their own ability to, to, to worship and to spend their money and their time in every way that they wanted to. They were sub- a subjected people. And they had a rhythm in their world. And this rhythm included five great feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, the three big ones, and then Hanukkah and Purim as well, these other more minor feasts. And it included certain fasts as well, particularly the Day of Atonement, but other times as well. And these feasts and these fasts were geared to remind these people who had weeks like yours and weeks like mine that that they were a special people and that they served a special God, a powerful God, And that this God who who loved them and and called them and cared for them would come back and rescue them and restore them and and help them be uh, freed from their oppressors and bring about shalom, this wonderful blessing of peace and prosperity. He'd come and he'd vindicate these people who had been oppressed for hundreds of years, literally. He would come back. So as they feasted together, they would celebrate this. And as they fasted, they were reminded that they were still in exile. They were still in the judgment of their sins. Exile, this thing that happened in in 587, um, where the Babylonian Empire, Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and carried them off to captivity. And that event, which was a great uh, affront to the glory of God from their perspective, but also the hand of God's judgment upon them for their sin, was perpetually a part of their collective identity and memory and rhythm as a people. So when the people of God fast in the first century, they do so out of an awareness of their ongoing exile and judgment. 
And they do so with a great expectation and hope, a longing that their God will one day return and make everything right and deal with them as he had promised to. Being a, uh, uh, an itinerant preacher in Galilee or Palestine in the first century and fasting went hand in hand. Part of your project in, in speaking to God's people, if this was your job and your vocation, was to, to long for God's one day final action to set his people free. It's much the same way that being a politician and campaigning go hand in hand in our culture. So we just had the elections on Tuesday, fresh in our minds. If we had a politician, a, a candidate, rise up in, in, in some way and just say, you know, I don't do that, I don't campaign, there would be a lot of scratching of the heads and questioning what's going on here. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't fit our categories. And in the same way, the people around Jesus as he begins his ministry in Galilee are scratching their head and saying, hey, what's going on here, Jesus? John's disciples, they fast. The Pharisees, they fast. But you guys, you, you just eat and drink. Your disciples don't fast. What, what's, what's happening? What's, what's taking place? Fasting was this sign of, it wasn't just about general practices of piety for individual people back in the first century, but when people fasted, they were tying into this national story of God and his people, saying it's not finished yet. It hasn't come yet. But when God finally acts, what happens to their fasting? Zechariah 8, verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. When God finally hears the cries of his people, and returns to his people, these fasts will turn into feasts. Jesus, you and your disciples aren't fasting. You're feasting. What's going on? That's the question of Luke 5, 33. The first words in Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is fulfilled. That long, long day of waiting that took hundreds of years, Jesus in his own ministry says, that day has come to an end. The bridegroom is here. This was the story. This was, this was the metaphor. A bride receives her bridegroom. The bridegroom is Yahweh, God. The bride is his people. The bridegroom is here. There's no reason to fast. God's promised revolution has come in me. The Pharisees are still waiting expectantly. John's disciples announcing the coming one, but he hasn't come yet, still waiting expectantly. Jesus' disciples feasting in those pictures of that great banquet that would come in full one day. God arriving to be with his people, 
God among his people. And in this new world where God has finally moved and acted and come among his people, fasting just doesn't fit. You know, it'd be kind of like taking the Commodore 64 that my family bought in the early 1980s and played Frogger and Donkey Kong on and bringing it into 2010 and setting it up next, next to your iMac and saying, okay, let's play. It's obsolete. It doesn't work anymore. And Jesus' statement about fasting is a statement about what time it is. We're not waiting anymore, people. It's arrived. Fasting right now with my presence here as, as the coming Messiah would be just like fasting during a wedding. And back in the first century, when the Jews got married, they didn't have a service like we do. The wedding was the feast. The bridegroom would go to get his bride and they would come to the place of the party and they would walk in and it would be time to celebrate, time to break out the wine and the food and the rich food and to, to, to do everything together in a spirit of celebration. And Jesus is saying, if, if we were to fast with me being here, it would be just as dumb as fasting at a wedding feast. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't go together. Sure, he says the time will come again, verse 35. The time will come again when when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they'll fast. But that's not this time. This time is a time of feasting. Driving home this point of discontinuity, Jesus then goes on to make a couple of statements that Luke calls parables in verses 36 to 39. Now these are fairly well known. But what Jesus is saying is that the new thing that's going on in me, that is the cause of our feasting and not fasting, this new thing collides, clashes, is incompatible with all the old stuff that goes before it. The old world's thought forms and behavior practices and patterns just don't fit anymore now that I've arrived. So he gives two warnings with these parables. The first warning is this, that people will try to take this new thing that God is doing piecemeal. So he says, you know, they'll take a little patch out of a new garment and they'll sew it onto an old garment. But it'll mess up the new garment because it takes some of its integrity away and it won't match the old garment. These things don't fit together. We've actually talked about this a decent bit over the last month and a half. Jesus plus. Take a piece. Patch it in to the old life. That's the warning. That's the, that's the, the exhortation that Jesus is giving here with these two things about cloth and wine. He says, you know, if you take the new wine and you pour it into an old wineskin, as that new wine begins to ferment more and more and expand, that wineskin will break and it won't hold the new wine. These things do not go together. This old way of life that you've been walking in, that you've been living out, doesn't go with my new ways. You can't just take me and, and add me into your life on your own terms. You can't just take me and continue to serve the gods of this age as you want to and experience anything of the life that I have. It, it won't work. It doesn't match. It leads to literally an explosion, this collision course. 
And you see hints at this in Luke's gospel in chapters 4 and 5, all the way up to this point where, where Jesus is spending time with the people who don't have, with the people who are on the margins, with the people that, that, that his culture would have rejected and said were nobodies. And certainly if God was going to come back, he wouldn't have anything to do with these people. He wouldn't go to the lepers. He wouldn't go to the paralytic. He wouldn't hang out with sinners. Jesus also shows the incom- in his incompatibility by, by rebuking a sense of a special claim on God by certain people. Oh God, we're the ones who are really worth, worthy of you. Jesus spends time with the very people who could never say that. Or Jesus, forgiving sins. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. Outside of the cult, the cult that was set up, the temple, the one ordained way for God the Father to forgive sins, Jesus forgiving sins. Something's not fitting. Something's not compatible. Something's not happening. This is wreaking havoc on their old patterns of thought and behavior. The second warning that Jesus gives is this. is verse 39, this kind of cryptic saying, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Saying to people who cling to, to what is familiar, cling to what they know and say, you know, Jesus, what you're bringing, I'm just not ready for it. I've tasted what I know. It's good. I like it. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to pursue my own way. So there's these warnings in Jesus's use of these parables, these little miniature pictures. And the implicit exhortation that Jesus gives by speaking in this way is again something that we've seen time and time again over the last few weeks. Don't cling to your way, but leave everything and follow me. You get these hints from Peter and the fishermen leaving everything and following Jesus. And then last week, Levi or Matthew leaving everything and following Jesus. I'm the new center. I'm I'm the new point of reference. Follow me. Follow me. And follow me exclusively. Follow me only. Don't try to patch me into some other kind of life that you're living. Don't try to follow me and serve fame or sex or beauty or comfort. Don't don't try to do this. It won't work. Follow me and me only. That's what he's exhorting people to. That's what he's explaining with these little pregnant um, parables. But there's also an implicit reality, and, and this is where I want to go to, um, to kind of move us toward a conclusion. And, and here, here's what I want to say. That, that the new age that Jesus is ushering in requires new wineskins. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. These parables are, are a demanding call to exclusive obedience and forming around Jesus. We struggle with that every day. Think about the week that I described at the beginning. To what degree are are we patching Jesus together with life as it's brought to us according to to our culture, according to our world, the dominant ways of thinking and behaving and spending our time and spending our money that so influence us 
that we can hardly sometimes detect it. How do we become new? You see, as, as they, they longed in the first century for God to do his great and final work, they had these passages in their scriptures that said something incredibly significant. Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 43, Ezekiel 36. They were passages that said, you know, when God finally does this great and wonderful work, he is going to change his people from the inside out. When God does a new thing, God will make us new. Listen to Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a spirit I, and, and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and, because, and, and, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." We're all old wineskins. Apart from the wonder, go back to the beginning, of God's steadfast love that endures forever. Apart from the wonder of God's resurrection power at work in each one of us, we are old wineskins that didn't deserve to be new, but that God in his great and abundant mercy reached out and made new, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins in the way that you formerly walked, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creation. I'm doing a new thing. I'll put a new spirit. I'll give you a new heart. I'll do a new work in you. The call of Jesus to say that my kingdom and my kingdom, or my kingdom values, my kingdom world, my kingdom work isn't consistent with your old ways of life and doing things, the ways that you struggle with again and again and again in your life. This call to come radically clean and leave all this stuff behind so that you'll follow Jesus with reckless abandon and never look back. That call will only work to the extent that you, like the paralytic, like the leper, like the the demon-possessed in Luke 4, like the sick, and like Levi, the, the scorned and rejected tax collector, that you will know that Jesus has power and he's changed you deep within and that he loves you. So don't hear a beating over the head to, to come clean. But, but tonight, come to the love of God, this steadfast love that endures forever, that's for half-hearted, lukewarm people like you and like me, that God is working something in the world through his son Jesus, and, and know that love, and live in that love, and know that power, even though you didn't know it last week. Be reminded of it tonight. so that God, through his Spirit, will call you to follow him radically and fully and completely, not trying to take him and put him in your old life. But because he's so wonderful, 
And he's so merciful and he's so kind and he's so powerful and he's so all-encompassing and he has done it. You want to follow him with everything you've got.